Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast, brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GhoulFriendPod on Twitter and GhoulFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey ghouls, happy hump day and welcome back to Ghoul Friends Podcast. I am joined by my best ghoul as always, Lindsay, how are you doing? Hey, uh, I'm all right, thanks. How are you? Good, yeah. This is the first time it's been just us two ghouls in a hot minute. Yeah, like, um, you know, we're recording on our on our first birthday, the podcast's first birthday, <laughs> the 1st of September, and I was, like, going, and I was just saying to you, actually, I was, like, going through our Spotify and seeing all the people we've collabed with, and it's, like, over half of our episodes have had guests on it, which has been great, but it is nice sometimes when it's just, just us as well. Just us, yeah. It's actually mad that it's been a year. I don't know how you feel, but it doesn't feel like it's been that long. No, absolutely not. Like, I, I don't, I felt like it would be, like, like this massive milestone but I, I feel like we just started like a couple of months ago like it doesn't feel like a year <laughs> no and we're just at the start of the journey and like we were talking about like just off recording we're gonna hopefully everyone keep your fingers toes eyes everything crossed for Dragula season five because we are so excited to cover that my god I, like, it's all I can really think about at the moment I'm like I just want a date I want to know who's going to be on it uh, so what's the theme for the spooky sleepover tonight babes so this week we are dipping our toes in the world of fashion and the theme this week is walk walk fashion baby horror that served looks yes now this I think this was actually one of my categories that I put in ages ago mm. we chose this was I remember messaging you we were thinking about what episodes we're gonna do in the next few weeks and I was like I just need an excuse to talk about last night in Soho because we watched that together. Yeah, was it? And it was so fucking good. It was so good, and it's so funny. It's like just last week because, like I've said a couple of times, like we're a couple of weeks ahead. Um, so the episode that we did with Amber, uh, what the hell did I just watch? Mm-hmm. We were literally saying it review pending on last night in Soho um, and here it is just like a few weeks later we're talking we found an excuse to talk about it exactly so that's my choice so what have you chosen for horror that serves looks I have chosen death becomes her absolute piece like classic piece of queer cinema um, and also just full of the absolutely most like exaggerated glamorous looks that you've seen Isabella Rosalini in this has the most mad clothes you've ever seen but she looks so good in them um so yeah absolutely had to be done exactly and I think I said to you like maybe last week I've only seen Death Becomes Her once which I feel like is homophobic of me because this is so camp and so good and it's just like 
is Meryl Streep at her finest. It reminds me of the Devil Wears Prada, mm. but like the horror version. So I think this is like a really nice um, double bill we've got tonight. Definitely. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I've been wanting to talk about Death Becomes Her for the longest time as well. So yeah, I think these two films complement each other very well. Yes. Well, let's get into it. So we'll start off with Last Night in Soho. brings you down then. I'm studying London I got this kind of gift. I can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. This. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Do you believe in ghosts? I want to report a murder. You witnessed the murder last night, but you believe this was a vision from the past. The guy that killed her is still alive there. I have to stop him. Where are you going? I know what you did. I've done a lot of things. You can have to be more specific, love. You can't save me. So the IMPD plot for this film is as follows. An aspiring designer, sorry, an aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. This film was released in 2021. It was directed by Edgar Wright, whose other work includes the Cornetto trilogy, Baby Driver and the iconic... Scott Pilgrim versus the world which is like the ultimate comfort movie to me um the cast includes Thomas and Mackenzie Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith it's also written by Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson Cairns now I don't know about you Lindsay because I remember when this came out and there was so much talk about it I didn't know like I knew it had Matt Smith in it and I knew it was based in the 1960s I knew sweet fuck all about this till we watched it and it was like it was nothing that I expected it to be 
but like in a good way yeah I'm the same like I knew Anya Taylor-Joy was in it I knew Matt Smith was in it I'm almost kind of annoyed at everyone for downplaying Thomas and Mackenzie's role in it because her portrayal of Eloise I don't think it would have worked as well without Eloise being herself do you know what I mean like if Thomas and Mackenzie didn't sell as Eloise I don't think we'd get the whole film um, so I think she's absolutely fantastic in this and similarly I was like I have no idea how this is a horror film but then when you watch it all the pieces come together and it's absolutely fantastic Edgar Wright is 100% one of the best filmmakers around at the moment and this film is a perfect example of it also small tangent have, have you started watching House of the Dragon yet? Not yet, I know, I need to. Is it really Matt good? Smith plays a right bastard and I Oh, does he? Yeah, oh, he's such Ooh. a cunt, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I said I couldn't picture him being a baddie, but he does have, and I mean this in a nice way, he has a really cunty face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I totally agree with you. I think Thompson McKenzie doesn't get enough love in this film because you need that stark contact, contrast with Anya Taylor-Joy. I think she plays that weak, character really well but then the journey that she goes on throughout this film I don't know I've never I've never seen a character like her in a horror film before she's really complicated and complex and the whole casting for this is great and this is like nothing I've ever seen Edgar Wright do before but this is totally different from everything else he's done yeah it's like there are those Edgar Wright-isms that are throughout it but it is very different and even if you compare this with his other horror film Shaun of the Dead these two things don't go together but they've still got those Edgar Wright-isms throughout which are just so him and things that fans of his look for every single time. Exactly so we'll get into the plot so as you mentioned we start off with um, Eloise who's also called Ellie Turner Um, And she is a massive fan of the 60s. She really loves the music. um, And she lives in like this really suburban town. And we find out a little bit more about her backstory. So her mum was also a fashion designer. She lives with her her grandmother. It's just the two of them. And you can see that she has a really close relationship with her grandma. And she just... What, What do you think about her relationship with her grandmother? Because it is very sweet, but they do seem quite codependent on each other. And obviously, given the circumstances, her mum had killed herself during her childhood. So she never really had her mum growing up. Don't really know much about her dad. So And it seems like, you know, she's trying to live up to the dream that her mum had because she gets her fashion and her love of fashion from her mum. Yeah, and it doesn't look like there's a granddad in the picture, whether that's from death or separation. So... Yeah, like when you think about it, like young young people are the loneliest generation. Older people experience a lot of loneliness when um their families grow up and separate from them and move away. So they have really leaned on each other for I'm not sure how many years have passed. Um, I kind of relate to Eloise a little bit, like being from such a rural area. And then, well, I went to Aberdeen. It's not exactly the big city. I realised that when I moved <laughs> up there. But the idea of moving away from my two-street village to a city was really terrifying. And it was like terrifying to me um, family at the time as well, because I was the first one to move away. So I kind of understand this 
exchange that they're having at the door and how nervous they both are because it was something that I went through before I moved away from home when I was 19 um, and just going to university and all that living with new people for the first time it's scary and then put on top of that the baggage of having a mother who died by suicide who was also a fashion designer someone that you clearly look up to and you know Eloise is going to want to make the family proud and that's a lot of weight to carry on young shoulders so true and like also seeing her wait for her um admission to um London College of Fashion that's so relatable to anybody that's gone to university I remember just waiting to get my admission results and I'm so fucking jealous you Gen Z's you don't know what it's like because you get your exam results through text okay I work in a university environment and I just did clearing recently and I like I remember I think ours was one of the last years that you had it through post I couldn't get my exam results through text that sounds really fucking old but it's just like oh that annoys me (laughs) um you're right it's a lot it's a lot of weight to have on her shoulders because this is her own dream, but it's also the dream that her mum had as well. And, you know, she never got quite got to really fulfil it. And when you live in a rural town, you have roots there. And it's really hard to break away from that. It's really hard to move out and move to uni anyway, let alone, you know, the baggage that she has. Um, so she does move away. She gets uh, accepted into Lo- London College of Fashion. She moves from we uh, Rodworth. Rodworth? Sorry, if anybody's from this area please don't butcher me for this. I know I can't pronounce stuff very well, but she's moving from Cornwall to London, goes into her university halls. Now, I didn't ever actually live in halls for good reason, and this is one of them, because I can't live with strangers. And some of these girls, especially, um, oh, what's the other one of them? She's an absolute cunt. I can't, I'm trying to remember her name. I need to get this, because it's going to annoy me. Um, Jocasta? Jocasta, yeah. She's such a little fucking conniving, snaky bastard, doesn't she? She's just that stereotype of someone who was like the queen bee at school and like is absolutely desperate to maintain that kind of control. But, you know, the things she do in high school don't work the same way as they do at university, unfortunately for some people, unfortunately for others. It's just the way she's very like nice and kind of it's kind of giving Regina George vibes but without actually being iconic mm. um, she's trying to be very nice and sweet and then you know later on when she's at the pub and then you hear her bitching about her behind her back and it's all like I feel like this is a very relatable experience like even her putting her coke can in the fridge she has to write her name on it because somebody's gonna bloody nick it there's a flat party and she's just trying to sleep like even at 18 I was an antisocial bastard and I, I leave the club at midnight. I need my bed. Like, I couldn't have dealt with what she had. Like, absolutely not. I don't know about you. Did you live in halls? I did live in halls. Um, yeah, it was okay. Um, I was really good friends with my, like, next door person to the point where we would, like, meet, like text each other for cups of tea and stuff like that. Um, the one who lived like whose door was right across from mine he was sound at start but he just went weird Um, I think he dropped out the girl that stayed next to him she never once spoke to anybody in the flat ever 
it was really strange and she had a party in the kitchen once and like didn't invite any of us and it was really weird and then the girl who stayed at the end on my side she was really nice but I think like by the end of the year she just kind of found our group of friends so we didn't bump into each other as much but she was really nice but the flat who was across from us they were like all best friends and I got on well with them and I was always kind of jealous of that because they were just like it just seemed like the happiest place in the world to be but at the same time I was quite grateful that I could just like be in my room by myself I kind of like going to visit people rather than the party being at mine do you know what I mean so that I can just like close the door at the end of the day and just be like okay it's done. I'm just here with the cat now. It's fine. No hungover cleaning up the next day. No. No. It's almost like when you see your friends that have kids as well, you can pick them up and like, oh, you're really cute. Back to your ma, back to your dad, whoever it is, your parent, and just leave them. <laughs> oh, yeah. One of my friends had a baby recently, and I'm just like, oh, I love him so much. But at the same time, as soon as he starts crying or something, I'm just like, oh, there you go. <laughs> Take him back. <laughs> And Lindsay's done all the fun stuff. <laughs> it's fun. It's interesting you're saying that you relate to Ellie in the sense that coming from a rural place and go, living somewhere new, I relate to Ellie in the sense of being finding it quite hard to fit in at uni. Like I think when I when I got to my second year, my third year, I really did find people. But I left school a year early, so I went to uni when I was seventeen. So I couldn't go to Freshers Week or anything like that. And like. I had a lot of health issues and stuff in first year. I was in and out of hospital a lot. So I really didn't like find my footing in uni for quite a while. And it can be very clicky because people will become friends with each other through freshers week. And by the time you're in class, because I couldn't go, everyone had already made pals. And I'm just there like, hi, like, it's awkward, you know? It is hard. Like I, I did uni like kind of in two stages. So I actually went to college first. I made great friends at college and we're still friends to this day. Um, but then I went to uni and when we had the kind of like induction week or whatever I somehow got put in a group that was nobody on my course so a lot of people in my course who uh, were doing the two plus two thing the same as me made friends and like I basically spent two like two years at uni friendless and like that's the effect it has like I really felt like I didn't have any friends at uni and it was horrible um bad boyfriend at the time so that kind of made up for it I suppose but um (laughs) so yeah I get what you mean like if you don't get that in straight away it's really hard to break in and yeah like when you're in third and fourth year as well uni's already so hard at that stage anyway and the unit I went to it's just like everything in those two years added up to what your degree was so I kind of had to get my head down so it was hard that way as well so pretty much poor Ellie doesn't have that many pals but she does um start to become friends with John I fucking love John. Me he's too. Boy ever, isn't he? Oh, he's so sweet. It's like at the start when she kept like pushing him away. I'm like, no, he's a nice boy. So no, she makes she makes friends with John, but she like we said, she's not finding friends in her uni flat. She's just quite miserable. So she decides, you know what? I'm actually gonna get out of here. So and this was as we said, this isn't based in the 1960s, this this bit's in modern day. This is very unrealistic. I don't know why, because I'm on London TikTok right now, and I'm just seeing, like, the housing crisis in London and people can't find anywhere to rent. It's the same as Glasgow. So the fact this girl manages to find somewhere to rent so quickly is a miracle in itself. But she walks past this street in Soho, 
and sees that there's a bedsit available um, and it's owned by this woman called Miss Collins. And she leaves her a couple ground rules. She's like, okay, well, if you want to stay here, you can't have any men up here. You have to be back by a certain time. It's a really dingy little room in the attic. Like, are you sure you want it? But she's like, yes, this is absolute heaven. She just wants her own space. So she ends up there and, um, you know, she starts working a part-time job at a pub as well. And at the same time, her granny's calling her like, how you doing? And, you know, she's telling her, oh, it's great. It's amazing. While well, she's like crying, you know, and just being really, really upset. But you know what? Like that room is actually all right. I love an attic room. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather be in there all the musky dusty furniture in, in that shitey accommodation halls <laughs> yeah like at the time halls was great you know it was 19 it was close to town and everything but then when I look back on it it like it was three foot by six foot like I feel like it was so small and this room that she ends up in as much as it stinks as Miss um, Collins says it's absolutely ginormous and it's all her own space and you think of her as a designer and stuff as well like all the space she'll have for a mannequin and a sewing machine and all this kind of stuff it's yeah it's miles better than a dinky little dorm room um so she's she has her first her first night there I also forgot to mention we do see now and again though it obviously ramps up a lot and it reminds me a little bit of when we talked about black swan when you see things like in the hallways or in mirrors she does see her mum it's like figures in the mirror at the start of the film so we know that there's some form of like supernatural element or she has some she has some connection to like the other the other side but her first night that she's in this bedsit she has a vivid dream where she's transported back to the 1960s at Cafe de Paris where she observes a young confident blonde woman called Sadie inquiring about becoming a singer at the club now this scene is stunning and this is like the start of the serving looks because this pink little 1960s dress is just it's iconic isn't it this whole setup is just beautiful you could totally believe that Anya Taylor-Joy is from the 60s as well like makeup wise that kind of doll eye look was so trendy in like the makeup sphere then and Anya Taylor-Joy has these big doll eyes and the, the blonde hair and the beehive and the pink baby doll dress like she looks like I don't know like a walking museum exhibit from that time um she also does all her own singing in the film as well um, yeah wow but yeah she looks absolutely amazing and at this point you're like you're so on board for Sandy you're just like yes Sandy like you want her to be this club singer in London and you kind of get to know that she like really wants to be a famous singer and you know you're seeing Matt Smith's character Jack and you just think he's this like suave guy that's going to help her and you're so on board with it and they both just do such a good job in this film. You don't realize how dark of a turn it's going to take and I love the way this is, this is shot where Ellie's like looking through the mirror and then it shots of Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy and like the way that they like interact throughout this film you know when they're looking in reflections and like you can't tell like who's who and they become this like one entity and yeah Matt Smith is so good in this because at the start he is like so charming and such a flirt and you actually feel like they look really cute together and you're like oh this is gonna go so well for her she's inquiring about becoming a singer and she does this like dance in the club and then 
um, Jack's like, I'm going to make you a star. You know, they have this like, instant connection. And then they have a wee cheeky snog, as you do. You know, there's, there's, there's a little bit of kissing, a little bit of touching. Um, and then Ellie notices, like, the next day that she has love bites on her neck. She's also imagining the situation. So when I thought this, I thought she was just, like, you know, having a little bit of me time as you do, get get the Hitachi wand out just to join the fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> it actually happens. It's, there's that actual like, physical element of it as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah, um, you think, like, at this point, you know, is this, like, a Freddy Krueger-type situation? Like, yeah. Eloise can travel through dreams. Um you have no idea like where this film's gonna go by its conclusion and then the next morning she decides to design a dress that's inspired by sandy and obviously all the girls in the class are being like very judgy and bitchy but the uh, lecturer is like absolutely in love with this it seems like she's really found her footing with 1960s fashion um, yeah these girls just hate everything she does like she could literally just like breathe in their direction and they're just like oh she could have invented fire and they'd be like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> I love the 60s like all my favorite genre of fashion is like because I'm like a big emo kid I love 90s like new metal and like early 2000s but I did love the 60s like when I was at Sage I used to dress in like rockabilly dresses and stuff as well you have like a great favorite like fashion genre where you're like oh I I would love to have lived in that time just to dress in those clothes I so it's well, it's kind of hard for me as a plus size person because throughout history my body has never been the archetype but I don't know like if I could really pick like I love the kind of extravagance of the 80s mm-hmm. um you know, just like big hair, like absolutely outrageous clothing, you know, neon colours. Like I love that. And I also love the 90s as well. Like I love 90s grunge. Um but yeah, part of me is like, oh, I love the 20s as well. But I don't know, I love it all. And then there's a part of me that would just love to be someone from the 1800s in a massive, like, you know, the skirts that come out the back. Oh shit, what are they called? Oh yeah, but it's got like the cage underneath and stuff. Yeah, like that. and just like folks just just to cut about in their day to day like that, and I kind of love the extravagance of that as well. <laughs> it seems a bit much, but people would do that day to day, just like go to the shops in a corset and a whalebone skirt. Like it's absolutely outrageous. Do you remember last year? I mean, because like lockdown fashion was so fucking interesting. Like. It seems like a lifetime ago, berries and cream was a thing, and we had the yeah. story in lace collars. But it was also Bridgerton. I remember when Bridgerton came out, it wasn't like the full gowns, but remember, like corset tops were a big thing for a while in that yeah. like Renaissance kind of print. Yeah, like Renaissance, like um, I was going to say Baroque, but that's not what it's called. But you could get them in like suede and velvet as well. Yeah, very lush. Um. So after this. Ellie has another dream so now she knows that like she's looking forward to this every day like we slowly see her wanting to be in Sandy's life or this dream state more than her own real life um she also gets her hair done as well she goes blonde love that for her um yeah she has another dream where Sandy successfully auditions at a Soho club arranged by Jack um, and this is where she has her little sing. I can't remember what song she sings, but it's really good. And now that you downtown, said, downtown, yeah. Oh, I got goosebumps. That was 
amazing. It was. So after this arrangement, she returns to her bed set um, and inspired by these visions, yeah, I mentioned Ellie dyes her hair. She starts to dress like Sandy as well. She gets like the long white coat that Sandy wears. She finds it at a charity shop. She's still, see, this is fucking London prices. It's like 200 quid for a jacket. But I would not be paying that in a charity shop. No, like oh, I remember once, like someone was trying to be like, I just knew someone who works at a charity shop, and then it just so happened to be some like antique kind of pottery or something there. Someone was trying to buy it for really cheap, but then this person was like, I know that this is worth a lot of money, so I think you should pay more for it. And she's like, It's for charity at the end of the day, and I'm like, But at the end of the day, a lot of people shop in charity shops because it's cheaper, and they might not be able to afford standard shop prices, so they're gonna buy something secondhand at a charity shop. And just because you suspect that they might have onerous intentions, you can't then decide that they must pay even more. Fuck capitalism. Yeah, fuck <laughs> it indeed. Um, as kind of mentioned before, she gets a job at a pub as well. She's never worked a bar a day in her life. She manages to get a job at like a, a little kind of like Irish style pub. And then we meet this silver haired man who we don't know anything about. He recognizes her similarities to Sandy. Now, were you getting major creeper vibes immediately? Because I was. Yeah, like based on, well, later on, you're absolutely convinced that this is older Jack. Um, and just the way he, just the way he kind of goes on, you're just like, oh, he's an absolute weirdo. Um, just to like circle back just a little bit, like, I love Ellie like becoming obsessed with Sandy like when she goes to this bar and asks for a Vespa and the bar lady's like what? Like, this is a simple pub like you can get a pint of something I'm not making you a Vespa what the fuck is a Vespa? do you know? because I don't know Um, it's gin and vodka so Ugh. to blow your head off Lucy absolutely that sounds vile it does, it does. I'm, I can't drink straight liquor anyway like give me a gin and lemonade and I'll drink it but straight gin or straight oh, straight vodka no thank you or a hooch we like some <laughs> oh, <lovely. laughs> <laughs> um, no that's right she does start to become obsessed like Sandy she starts getting like her mannerisms and stuff like that and really embodying her as a character becoming her own like we femme fatale then she starts realizing, like, as she goes into more and more dreams, that Sandy's life isn't as glamorous as what we first thought. Um, she ends up being essentially pimped out by Jack to his male business uh, associates. He's saying, like, if you want to get famous, if you want to have like fame, fortune, riches, this is what you fucking have to do. And this is where he starts getting really nasty. And she, you can see, like, there's this like. It's actually quite hard to watch the montage that comes after this bit because she's having drinks with these men. We see that she's sleeping with them for money. And at first, like, she's quite nervous. And then you can just see, like, her spirit slowly start being broken. And she, first of all, comes up with these great, like, fake names and stuff like that, really building the persona. And she's just, she's slowly just not giving a shit. Um, and you see the really dark seedy side of London and all these men like what did you think of the sequence because I found it hard to watch yeah it was really horrible like 
I think it just goes to show as well, like people who are in abusive relationships, like it's not always immediately obvious that it's an abusive relationship. Like we saw Jack at the start and we all kind of like fell in love with his boyish charm and we're kind of rooting for him and Sandy. And now it's taken this turn. Um, I think as well, it says a lot about the entertainment industry in general. Like, it, you know, when was Me Too? Like 2017, 2018. And yeah. we still had these powerful men telling women that they had to do sexual favours in order to get somewhere. But of course, that should not be the case, but it was. And there's a lot of other people holding up that standard to make it and keeping those secrets to make sure it still happens and it's the same with Sandy here Sandy will not be the only person this is happening to there'll be other girls who are wanting to be singers or dancers in clubs and they're being pimped out under the false pretense that eventually it'll happen and it it never does and then yeah just seeing her go from this like bright bubbly person at the start and just kind of just watching like her soul die off um it's horrible oh it's so eerie and this is the scary part for me is when the men like start losing their faces and they become like these literal mannequins and i think it, like it's the physical manifestation of disassociation because of course you're going to disassociate in a situation like that she's leaving her body and her mind is somewhere else because that's the only way you could deal with something like that and you can see Ellie like having nightmares about this and wanting to get out because she feels like it's happening to her in that moment as well so it's so fucking traumatizing but you're right even now I mean how many times have we heard about problematic directors even since the Me Too movement using women for their bodies and just not seeing seeing women as actual actors or actual talent behind or in front of the screen you know worth more than just their bodies like it's it's still an issue today so it's it's interesting to see that unfortunately things sometimes don't change so in her waking life Ellie becomes disturbed by increasingly menacing apparitions that resemble Jack and the men who exploited and used Sandy like she starts seeing them during the day so it's not even just at night now she's not being taken seriously she ends up um going to the police because one night she sees a vision of Jack murdering Sandy so he comes to her comes to her room which Sandy's room used to be Ellie's room so Sandy used to stay in this flat in this bed in Soho and there's one night they're having an argument and we can see he's already been quite physically abusive before he you know he's been slapping her and holding her down and we see this murder happen what what did you think when 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 he killed her at this point like I mean, things take another turn, there's another twist, but were you surprised or were you shook? Or... I don't I don't know. Like, I feel like this, at this point, it was like the natural conclusion of the story. It's like, oh, so it's Sandy's ghost trying to get Eloise to avenge her. Um, you know, she's seen something in Eloise and she's decided that Eloise is the person that's going to get her justice and you know we found Jack we found the old version of Jack he goes to this pub that Eloise works at and now we're going to get on and like I genuinely think that that's where the story is going to go at this point um because I feel like that kind of story has been done before so you know you've put the pieces together and you're like oh yeah that's the story that's what's going to happen um 
I don't I was gonna say thankfully I don't know if thankfully like I do enjoy this <laughs> film but maybe that film could be good as well but it takes another turn and I think that's what keeps it interesting and things that happen from this point really you know Edgar Wright leaves us little nuggets of what is actually happening which is another reason why I think this film is so good there is actually a lot of evidence throughout the film to tell you what is actually happening but you just have to be willing to see it it's that foreshadowing it's definitely a film you can watch multiple times and be like oh yeah they're starting to give stuff away um, especially with our silver-haired local man, I think, watching it again. Oh, yeah, like, why didn't I see that before? So after witness- witnessing this murder, um, she decides to go to the police station to file a report. But obviously, she's reporting a murder that's been, like, oh, God, this is the 1960s, like 70 years ago, eight years ago, something like that. It's a long fucking time ago this happened. So understandably, they're thinking, does this girl need sectioned? Are you Okay. How's your well-being? Also, before this, it's not mentioned in the notes, but we had the Halloween party, and I fucking loved this party because she goes with John, and you think it's going to be really sweet and cute, and then the bloody gets spiked by those cunty girls. Yeah, it's just... I don't know why girls would do that to another girl. Like, knowing everything that could happen as a result, but it just shows you how actually nasty... Well, Jocasta is, and mm-hmm. how really stupid the other ones are. Because I think I, I don't know if they fully agree with what she's doing, but they are quite happy just to follow her for an easy life, um, which is really messed up as well. And so, um, she goes, she goes to this Halloween party with John. They don't have any outfits, but they still, I, they still slay with the makeup a little bit. Not gonna lie, they still, they still turn out. Um, they have a wee kiss outside, and then she takes him home. But obviously does not like that so comes in to find them about to do the hanky panky and it goes as wrong as wrong could possibly go you know Ellie's having a panic attack he bloody smashes himself into the side of the mirror it's all fucking kicking off but bless him like he still looks out for her after this and when you know she's trying to find out more about Sandy's murder she's like in the library looking at newspaper articles and things like that he doesn't judge her. He just wants to help her. Like he's he's the himbo of this film, and um, I love that. I wish we had more of him, to be honest. That is what makes John so great in this film because we see her having a few wobbles, for lack of a better word, in class, and everybody just wants to judge her. And like obviously, this story of having visions of a woman from nineteen sixties is a bit bizarre but surely anybody could sympathize with someone who's clearly having some kind of mental breakdown but instead they just like gop at her and it's really disgusting like it is like have some have some sympathy because yeah. I mean just even if we didn't have this, which they don't know about the situation that she's going through living this double life through Sandy but the trauma that she's went through she's living at uni on her own like you know she's got nobody you, 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 of course you would have a wobble I would have a wobble every day I have a wobble every day anyway without any of that oh yeah I cry all the time especially the now <laughs> <laughs> so after this um, she starts finding like stories of local men who have vanished without a trace um, and she is insistent on avenging Sandy and she's convinced that the silver haired man is Jack and we're convinced it's Jack as well um, so she goes to the pub 
and he's downstairs and he's been so creepy this entire time because he's he always says these lines like I know all the pretty girls in London and like all this stuff and it's like oh get away um he denied he he says he knows Sandy so we know that there's that connection but he denies killing her and leaves the pub and then he's struck by a taxi and dies and I remember when we were watching it and I went because oh, I didn't expect that um but we find out through Ellie's boss that that wasn't Jack. That guy's name was Lindsay. Um, and Ellie recounts calls encountering him in her dreams. He was actually an underco- undercover vice officer trying to encourage Sandy to escape her life of prostitution. Now, this was such a good, especially like, you know, in some horror movies, many movies, but in some horror movies, it's like, oh, yeah, it's an obvious reveal. This was not an obvious reveal. No, it was so clever by the writers to add this in because like when I thought it was Jack that was dead I, I was kind of thinking to myself what the fuck are we going to do for the rest of the movie like we're avenging Sandy's death like we need to have Jack to go against and then you know a lot of the weird things he says make sense and then I guess as well if you take into account the fact that he is a like a vice officer and he's probably worked very strange hours and been around very strange people his strange behaviour makes sense the way he goes on kind of makes sense because I don't think you do those kind of jobs and can really hold a normal conversation when you've done prostitution rings and drug like trafficking and all those kind of things like you've seen the real underbelly of the world you you don't want to talk about House of the Dragon do you? <laughs> no <laughs> no <laughs> talk about what you're having for tea tonight no. you know? I'm just <laughs> you. um so after this ellie's like in a massive fucking panic realizing oh this isn't jack and i haven't actually avenged sandy um so she starts getting ready to leave london and she feels really bad because she said to miss miss collins that i won't leave because she said before that she's had tenants who have left and that's why she asks for a really hefty deposit Anybody that does that as well, fuck landlords that do that because you're greedy bastards. But she's, you know, she's saying, I'm trusting you not to leave. Please don't leave. So she's obviously very upset to have done that. And she's sitting in like her living room. But we have this like another reveal. Um, Mrs. Collins reveals that actually she is Sandy. Did you think that was going to happen? Right. See, just before, she's like, I'm Sandy. She's going through, Eloise is going through the letters and one of them says Alexandra. I honestly, I've, it was like someone knocked the, like, the wind clean right out of me. Because in my head, if I'd been alone, I would have been like, oh my God, she's Sandy. But you were there and I didn't know if you'd notice. So when you're lying on the couch, I'm like, oh, be quiet. <laughs> but in my head, I was like, ah, she's Sandy. Like, I couldn't believe it. And it was an amazing twist. Um, I think as well, just we've not spoken about the fact that Miss Collins is actually Dame Diana Rigg, the late Dame Diana Rigg. Yes. Um, one of the things that Edward Wright wanted to do with this film was bring big stars from the 60s into this film. And like one of the reasons that she wanted Diana Rigg to work on it and she kind of wanted to work on it as well was that Diana Rigg had a sex, like, the sex appeal symbol thrust upon her in the 60s when she played Agent Emma Peel in The Avengers. And she was always known as, like, oh, 
big sexy Dame Diana rig and she hated it she absolutely hated it um but for like millennials like us like I've never seen the Avengers so what I know her is is Lena Tyrell from Game of Thrones and she's absolutely bloody brilliant in that and you know this was her last film before she died in 2020 and I think this film is like a great send-off to her because the twist that she the whole time has been the villain is just bloody brilliant she also has single-handedly the greatest line in Game of Thrones where she's like tell Cersei it was me oh I bloody love that <laughs> I, I, I love Elena Tyrell she's the fucking boss like oh amazing absolute fucking icon um Oh, I lost my notes there because I was just so excited about that. But I completely forgot she played her in Game of Thrones. I don't know why I didn't. But she looks so different. Like, it's, like, unrecognisable. So, yeah, we have that reveal of, like, Miss Collins is actually is actually Sandy. Um, and Ellie's visions of Sandy's death was actually a vision of Sandy killing Jack when he threatened her with a knife. Sandy then lured the men that she was pimped to back to her room and killed hiding their bodies in the house's floorboards and walls. She was doing, like, a proper H.H. Holmes. Um, and I understand why she did what she did. Oh, absolutely. Every single one of them deserved it. Like, I'll die in that hell. And yeah. do you know what? I'm sure there will be well, women and men up and down the country who have been abused, sexually abused, raped, and all the rest of it, who would be like, no. <laughs> absolutely not. You know, you do more time in certain places for murder than you do for rape or and all these other crazy things. And it's just like, no, like every single one of them deserved it. They wouldn't have given a shit if she lived or died. Mm-hmm. I would have been clapping in the cinema. Please oh, yeah. I was like, yes, you go, girl boss. Us, us standing up clapping. Good for her. moment. <laughs> um, um, so this also explains maybe why Ellie's seeing all the men as well, because all their spirits must be there. I know she can have sense spirits that aren't in the room and stuff like that, but that room that she's in is like a supernatural hotspot with all these bodies and all the murders that have gone on there. Mrs. Collins then also reveals that she's drugged Ellie's tea and intends to kill her to ensure her silence, because Ellie's like, I promise I won't tell anyone, but Miss Collins is like, you know too much already, so sorry, babe. They're also getting the chop. And I think she's such a good murderer because she's got this, like, I don't know, she reminds me of Umbridge, like, sickly sweet, but also terrifying and evil. Yeah, there's, like, a matter-of-factness about it. It's like, well, well, you have to go because you know too much. And she doesn't seem to have any... She doesn't seem to be loving it, but she doesn't seem to feel remorse for it either. She's just like, it has to happen. Like, it's it's a practical decision to her rather than like an emotional one yeah and after this oh my heart was breaking for him because john obviously wants to help so what does he do he's out because he was he had the car as well because the you know ellie was planning on leaving london and she bumps into john and john's like look i'll take you back in the least sweetheart he is and he decides to knock on the door because he's been obviously been waiting a while and then what happens he gets stabbed almost straight away and you're like i thought he was dead there and then I was devastated. I don't know about you. Yeah, I was the same. I just I thought it was going to be a, a, another one for the for the wall, um, for the inside of the walls. So Ellie 
flees upstairs where the spirits of Sandy's victims beg Ellie to kill Mrs. Collins, but she refuses. Uh, Mrs. Collins enters Ellie's room where she also sees the spirits. And she's struck by the ghost of Jack. Now, I quite like these special effects as well because they're not like too over the top or cheesy or anything like that. I think it's done really well. Um, the police are also outside. Um, and there's this really interesting interaction where, you know, Mrs. Collins or Sandy, because she is Sandy, goes through this kind of back and forth. And she's like, you know, I don't want to get taken. I'm pretty old at this point. She's like in her 60s or 70s. She wants to go out fighting. She attempts to cut her own throat, but is stopped by Ellie, who tells her she understands why she killed the men and begs her to live. When Mrs. Collin asks Sandy, tells Ellie to save herself and John, and she stays in the building as it burns. So what do you think of this? Because we have this almost reconciliation where they've had this massive fight, you think Ellie's going to die. Then they have this connection where Ellie realises that she's not so different from Sandy, and like they have this moment where she's like, I understand why you did what you did. I forgive you, even though she doesn't need forgiven. I think Sandy needed to hear that. Because um, she's been holed up in that same house where this horrible thing happened to her time and time again. You know, abused by the person that like, she thought was going to take care of her and give her her dreams, but instead led her to be raped by tens if not hundreds of different men in London so she then holed up in the same house where this happened over and over and over again and I think Sandy needed to hear that what she did was understandable what she did wasn't wrong because she's been holed up in that house for decades um Dame Diana Rigg was in her 80s when she died so she could been in this house for 60 years just overthinking what she'd done trying to protect the secret whereas if anybody knew the true story they would have completely understood she still would have got the jail unfortunately I don't think she should have but like everyone would have been sympathetic to what had gone on in that room all those years ago exactly and as much as she puts on a front you know she like even though she doesn't have to you know she feels guilty for it you no. can tell she's not a bad person either. Like, she takes care of Ellie. Yeah, she does. Because after that situation she has as well with John, as much as she has a go at her, she also makes sure she's okay after. And it's like, did he do anything to you? Did he hurt you? Because she knows what that feels like. Yeah, like, Sandy's first thought is, like, did he hurt you? Like, she's always thinking, is this someone I need to take care of? And she was gonna, she was gonna do that for Ellie, someone she doesn't even know, because she knows what it's like. Exactly, and I feel like that's probably a, a bond that a lot of us as women or femme presenting people have. Unfortunately, we've all, not everyone's been assaulted, but we've all been in a situation where we felt unsafe. So if we see somebody else that feels unsafe, like I like to think that most of us would help and support and fight back for them because it's like that unspoken bond um, yeah definitely and I think Sandy had to go with the building as well yeah. like there's no life for her really outside of this house the, the secret that she's kept for 60 years like she had to go down with it exactly and I think she was ready to let go I mean well she tried to kill herself anyway she's like you know, she's been suffering that long. I think after hearing 
what she heard from Ellie that she needed to hear felt like that was her being like, okay, I can let go now. Um, so after this, and the building's on flames, and we're led to assume that Sandy's died, um, we get a flash forward. So Ellie has her end of year fashion show, and it's all based on the 60s. And now these designs, again, we're going to serve in looks are absolutely stunning. They're all in that kind of swing style, 60s, twiggy inspired cut so it's all based on the cut that Sandy has with her dress but like in different colours and patterns and fabrics she's congratulated backstage by her granny and John who's now her boyfriend we love that for them we didn't die I was so happy about that um, and she's gone back to like she's not back to exactly how she dressed in her aesthetic at the start of the film it's like a hybrid so she's not copying Sandy and living through Sandy's shoes but she's not the Ellie that we had at the start she's this like new more confident improved version you know she's gone back to brunette but she looks very sleek and stylish um and she looks and she sees her mum's spirit in the mirror and then a vision of sandy who waves and blows her a kiss and that's our ending a really sweet ending i would say um yeah yeah, yeah i think it's nice like i think obviously the the actions that happened towards the end like it's like ellie helped to let sandy be free so now like Sandy is this kind of protective spirit over her as well as her mother now which is really nice for her exactly I'm just having a look at some trivia so as you already mentioned this was the final performance of Diana Rigg Thomas and Mackenzie dropped out of Top Gun to star in this movie which is I think is a good a good move on her part because she did fantastic in this film um also, during the end credit shots of a deserted, empty central London, these were all done during the pandemic, which I think is really smart on their part because, I mean, imagine trying to block, I mean, a lot of the shots they have were of Oxford Street and Piccadilly Street, really iconic areas of London. And imagine how expensive it would have been to book that off, even for a couple hours in the evening. So well, it's like that really iconic shot in 28 Days Later. Yes. And you can tell that that's filmed like just as the sun's coming up. I'm sure it was filmed at something like four in the morning. And you can tell it's filmed just as the sun's coming up. Um, because there's no way in hell they'd be able to close off that bridge in the middle of the day. That's so true. So at least they didn't have to get up at the crack of dawn. <laughs> yeah. The title comes from a 1968 song by the pop band Mick and Titch um, called Last Night in Soho. Um, oh, Stephen King had the opportunity to see this uh, in advance screening and he was so impressed that he tweeted, I hardly ever rewatch. There's so many good things out there, but this one is special, which I would agree. Definitely, definitely. Oh, Eloise is apparently based on Edgar Wright's mother as well. Oh. That's quite interesting. Trivia galore here in regards to the 1960s. So I think Edgar Allan Wright, uh, he has quite a, a love for that genre from the looks of things. There's a lot of nods there to like historic areas of London as well in the 60s. And um, I just think this is the epitome of Britain and fashion. And you know, what did you think of this film when you finished it? Because obviously we watched it together. And I know immediately afterwards we were both like, this is so good. But <laughs> you want to add anything to that? Yeah, just um, I remember reading as well that Edgar Wright called this like a dark love letter to London. And I absolutely get that because 
you kind of want to be like like you want to be Eloise and Sandy like in the happier points of the movie like Eloise just being 18 and living in London and you know being away from home for the first time and how exciting that is and then Sandy being in the 60s and you know we've all heard stories about London in the 1960s and kind of wanting to be Sandy with her blonde beehive and her baby doll dress you know getting touched up in the toilet by a very fit Matt Smith and you just want to be them and the way their characters are written that you are so invested in their stories and you just want good things for them and even if that is like coming to peace with your past in the midst of a fire like I'm glad that Sandy got that relief even if it was like 60 years later than it should have been you know I'm happy for her I'm happy for Ellie having her fashion show moment and having a nice boyfriend and just being able to be a young person in London enjoying uni without all this baggage of her past and you know these mental wobbles that she was having like I'm glad that she's kind of worked on that and moved past it yeah it's quite a feel-good horror film Mm. as much as it's dark and there's some difficult scenes to watch in the end everyone kind of gets their own happy ending in a way yeah I was just gonna say that like it is like a happy ending one thing I like about this film as well is that you know it's highlighting a time in history especially in Britain, where, you know, we have a lot of romanticism for it and we look at it through rose-tinted glasses, but in the reality, it wasn't like that. Even, like, the 70s, you know, we have a lot of love for the 70s fashion in ABBA, but look at what was happening in the UK at that time. Like, recession galore, like we're going through right now in the living cost crisis, Thatcher, minor strikes. You say that about the 50s, people romanticise the 50s, but it was post-war... Politically, things were very different. Women also had next to no rights. There were so many abusive marriages at the time. The 90s, you know, we glamorised that, but it was eating disorders galore as well. And it was a very difficult time to, you know, it was size zero culture. So you can say that for any decade, really, you know. Absolutely. We we always just focus on, like, the good parts of it. Like, you always think of, like, the swinging 60s and hippie culture or, you know, the early days of rock and roll if it's the 50s and going to those dances and you know you just think of the 20s as like hedonism and just like kind of like gluttony for parties and alcohol whereas there are other political things like I'm sure I've seen it a few times like people who want to go back to a certain decade like you'll never hear a person of colour say that because it's like they're going back to a time where like they have less and less rights whereas for white people men especially it's like that doesn't really happen for them unless you're going quite a bit back uh, and talking about like money Um, you know obviously at one stage in time if you didn't earn was it if you didn't earn a certain amount or if you didn't own a house or something like even as a man you couldn't vote like yeah. you had to have money to vote and that was it which is wild that is just <laughs> not a democracy but um yeah i'm sure people will be saying that about 2020s they'll romantic well can they romanticize the 2020s because it's been pretty fucking hard so far pretty fucking shit so far i do wonder that sometimes though like what is it when i'm 80 that people are going to be like about this time like 
oh I can't believe they said that that was so backwards like (laughs) do you know what I mean because I feel I feel like we're definitely like on the road to being more progressive in terms of like trans people and non-binary people I think there's there's a small minority that keeps shouting about it but I think there's a lot of people who just accept it and want to learn uh, but I wonder what in like when I'm 80 in the oh god what decade will it be like the 2070s what oh will we be what will kids be saying like oh, I can't believe you used to say that in 2020 that's crazy they'll be like podcasts what the fuck is that this archival audio footage like you bunch I know. of <laughs> Um, in terms of, we'll get on to box office and ratings then, if that's all we have to say on last night. Soho, um, this film had a very hefty budget. It was $43 million, which you definitely see where they spent that. They obviously have a very stellar cast. The costuming is great, but also the set design as well. However, I'm pretty fucking gutted about this. And I'm surprised because I feel like I heard a lot of people talking about this. Only goes $22 million at the box office. You have to bear in mind, like, it's 2021, there's still a lot of restrictions That's true. in 2021. Not as many people can get to the cinema. I think we are going to have a good three years of film, especially, like, original stories like this, where they're just not going to make the money. Um, if you look from 2020, probably and probably a bit this year as well, they're just not going to make the money. Like in 2021, I think it was Spider-Man No Way Home that really bucked the trend. But Spider-Man's a really well-known character. The MCU is very well established. It was gonna, it was gonna pull people in. And it was Christmas as well. So um I think it's unfortunate for our, you know, original horror stories. They're they didn't get the people coming in. Um I'm not sure if this had any like streaming release um or if it was just cinema but yeah it's a big it's a big shame for I'm saying just horror but a lot of just like original film stories they they wouldn't have had the buy-in from the audience that they would have had if it come out two three years prior this is so true and it, it I mean even now we see a knock-on effect I know this is slightly off topic but it's in the creative industry like I was at the Fringe Festival of the weekend and fringe tickets, like it, it's gone down significantly, even though it was still really busy. Like the creative arts, cinema, theatre, any kind of shows, it's just gone down because of because of COVID. You know, people can't travel, but also because of the cost of living. You know, people have to make priorities, and it is a shame. Um, but hopefully, unless it's on streaming services already, that gives it the boosts it needs. Because I feel like I heard a lot about this, but it's because we're actively involved in the horror community. Out mm. with that. I don't know if I would have heard about it, which is a fucking shame because, I mean, in my opinion, it's a great film. We'll Absolutely. Get on- and Edgar Wright is a filmmaker that should be getting shouted about, like Shaun of the Dead, yeah, um, Baby Driver, Ant-Man, that he wrote. Um, I can't remember the other oh. film. <laughs> Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, these aren't small films, they're really no. well-known films. Um, so you'd like to think that his name plastered all over it would have got a bit more attention, but it will from horror fans, but maybe not, or film fans, but maybe not so much the wider public. Sure. So if you haven't seen it yet, folks, get it watched. Get it um, watched. 
But we'll get into the ratings. So for last night's Soho, IMDb gave it a 7.1 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it 76. The audience gave it 90. Metacritic, harsh buggers, gave it 65. As we always say here, we don't give a shit what the critics say. We just care about our own opinions. So, Lindsay, were you going to give last night's Soho out of 10? I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Like, there's... Where are the flaws in the film? I can't find them. Can you? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I find it hard to give it a reason to give it anything less. And the only reason I don't give it more is because I'm stingy with my tens. But uh, yeah, like nine out of ten, everyone should watch this film. It's a fun ride. There's so many twists and turns. Like you're not gonna get bored watching this. Not at all. I'm also going to give it a 9 out of 10. The only reason I'm not giving it a 10 is because I've been given a lot of fucking 10s recently on the podcast. And I feel like I need to be precious with them. So I'm going to save it. But no, there's like, plot-wise, there's not anything that doesn't make sense. I feel like there's probably something in this for everyone. It's, if you're a fan of British cinema, fashion, horror in general, if you like like, an iconic cast, like, I mean, everyone in this is great. like, the minute I finished it, I wanted to watch it again. Like, yeah. that's how much I liked it. And that's pretty rare. So, yeah, I can't, I can't say anything bad. So, two nine out of tens. Can't complain at that. But we are going to move on to the next movie, The Spooky Sleepover, The Camp Galore, that is Death Becomes Her. So, Lindsay, take it away. Know that it's worth every treasure on earth to be young. Some people will go to any length to stay young forever. Is that someone? It's Madeline Ashton. She was a big star in the 60s. I thought she was dead. Oh, madam, you look younger every day. Thank you, Rose. But Madeline Ashton and her old friend, Helen Sharp. I've lost men to her before. Mad Are about to go (laughs) too far. A touch of magic. Drink that potion, and you'll never grow even one day older. Bottoms up. No warning. Now a warning? Siempre viva! Live forever! Ernest, I'm in the morgue. They think I'm dead. You are, but you're not. Are you telling me it doesn't hurt when I do this? It doesn't hurt. She's dead! She's dead, Ernest. Now he's dead. He's dead? Ernest is dead? Everybody's dead! You pushed me down the stairs. I'm so sweaty. I don't think it's sweat, honey. I think you're defrosting. Universal Pictures presents Meryl Streep, Bruce Willis, it's a miracle, and Gordy Hawn. Look at me, I'm soaking wet. Death becomes her. I just have to make a telephone call. So the IMDb plot for Death Becomes Her is as follows. 
when a fading actress learns of an immortality treatment, she sees it as a way to outdo her long-time rival. This film came out in 1992, stars Middle Street, Bruce Willis and Goldie Hawn. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who also directed the 2020 remake of The Witches, uh, Castaway and Forrest Gump and many, many other films. Um, and it was written by David Kep and Martin Donovan. I don't know why that was so hard to say. So interesting thing about this film like straight off the bat because you weren't here last week Lucy so Robert Zemeckis was a producer on House of Wax 2005 oh, wow, no way. and David Kep wrote Panic Room oh, shit. That, we, that we covered last week so <laughs> when I was pulling the notes together I was like it was Robert Zemeckis I was like I've seen that name recently and I went and looked it up and he was like I seen it on House of Wax, so I thought that was interesting that both those people who worked on this film connected to our films from last week. Um, so you said you'd seen this one other time before. So, like, what when was it you seen it? What were your initial impressions? I think I saw this a good few years ago. I wasn't like a little toot or anything, but I think I was maybe. I don't know like 17 or 18 when I was going to uni for media studies and it's one of those films where it's like iconic and you have to watch it it's kind of like especially in queer horror and queer films you know you think of things like Rocky Horror but Death Becomes Her also gets referenced a lot in like the drag scene as well and like you know RuPaul's Drag Race it got referenced all the time so I was like I need to watch this and I, I did really like it I've forgotten because it's been so long how fucking good it is and like how iconic all the cast are and it just I know it's, I said it reminds me of um Bella Wars Prada but it also reminds me of Stepford Wives just that that over-the-top humor and like the rivalry between these two women and how they use the guy just as a pawn in their vengeful petty game I fucking love it so much I support women's rights but I support women's wrongs even more um, I watched this film for the first time when I was quite young. Like I kind of said it a few times on the podcast now, like now that I've kind of rooted through my very messy memory, like the first three horror films I remember watching is this, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, an interview with a vampire. And um, yeah, obsession with witches, vampires and boobs, like absolutely comes from these three films indeed but um when you were saying about the how important it is to the queer community I saw this quote yesterday and it's actually from an executive producer of RuPaul's Drag Race which I think sums up the film perfectly so Tom Campbell said about this film that they're fighting for beauty they're fighting against the system they're also villains, but we understand their complexity. We root for the undead divas because they're trying to win a game that's rigged against them. And to borrow an apocryphal quote from Ginger Rogers, they sort of have to do it backwards and in high heels. Which I think like really sums up this film well. Like We'll see later that this film has been rated very poorly. We've kind of said a couple of times on the podcast, like... A lot of times I think men, especially review films, and they don't understand that it's not for them. And they're just like, I don't like this because it has this, this, and this in it. This is a film for the girls' gaze and knees. Exactly. A hundred percent. Like, this is for the girls' gaze and knees. And, you know, if you're part of the elite 
straight males that love this good for you like you're always welcome on girlfriends but you know this is this is not for straight men this is for the girls gays and mates let's go into the plot and like I think the plot if you don't get why the film is just for the girls gays and mates based on that quote alone like we'll go through the we'll go through the plot because a lot of this is about rivalry between women but you know I think a lot of people misunderstand I remember we've definitely spoke about this recently but I can't quite remember when I think a lot of men think that women will fight over men and some women will but it's not a trait across the board the issue that these women have that causes them to do what they do in this film is the societal standards placed on us by fashion the fashion industry the beauty industry which is ultimately controlled by men is what causes them to do what they do it is patriarchy at the end of the day it 100 percent is and you can see throughout this film as well it's not the men that these women give the shit about the opinions of it's of each other like mm. each other thinks it's not about it's not about the the husband that goes off it's not about the other men at the parties it's not about all that all they care about is each other and what the other thinks of them. That's that that is it at the end of the day. Um, and the very complex relationship that these two characters have that we'll speak about. But it is, I love what you're saying there, they're doing it backwards and high heels, because it, it definitely is. You know, as you said, there's a big pressure. When did this come out? The 90s, but even now. Yeah, 92. 92. But think about that time as well where women had to, you know, it was a very fat phobic time. I mean, there's still a lot of fat phobia in the world, but when I was watching this, that was something that I definitely noticed. You know, when we get the hospital scenes and stuff like that, like how dare somebody be plus size, you know, and not look a specific way that's catered towards the male gaze. Um, so there's there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had there around mental health as well. And women were seen as you're only worth something if you're desired by men. And also the, the constant search for youth, because we stood back, goes across any decade I mean look at all the films we spoke about recently when we've spoken about vampires as well like would you want more would you want to be immortal and watch everyone die around you they don't care about these consequences because it's it's about being beautiful that's what they want and it's supposed to be a sarcastic piss take of that Mm. it's not like this film saying women will take a potion and live forever because they want to look beautiful it's what men think women want that's what it is that's what I think anyway yeah, but like yeah, very much so. Like they they think we're so vain because we like some women like to wear a lot of makeup, they like to have their hair done, they like to dress nice, and they think they're just like vapid and narcissistic. And that's not the case at all. And I feel like in some ways, like the pandemic and lockdown, if that taught anybody anything, is that like people who like to wear makeup, which mostly is women will wear a full face of makeup just to sit in the house like they do it because yeah. they love it they don't do it for anybody else it's a form of self-expression I mean I really got into makeup over COVID um you know I was doing like cosplays just in my fucking living room I wasn't going anywhere it's it, it, it's a form of self-expression it's a form of art as is having your hair done or doing your makeup your makeup fashion tattoos any way that you're modifying your body any man that's listening it's not for you 
for us like nobody goes to that trouble for for the approval of a fucking man I just sparked off like an absolutely horrible memory of um, one of my ex's dads. I'd got my nails done. Oh no, I painted them myself. I didn't get my nails done at this point, but I did used to like doing my own own nails at this point. Now I get them done by a professional because I'm bougie. But anyway, I was like, oh, like I'd done my nails for going on holiday. And he was like, why did you get your nails done? Like, nobody's going to be looking at your nails. And I just went back. I got them done because I wanted to get them done. And it had nothing to say. It absolutely gobsmacked that I, a woman, would do something just for myself that involves beauty. And and I said to somebody, I was like, oh, like, we had this exchange. And they just were so laughing. They were like, I love that you just said that. And I was like, well, it was the truth. I was like, I was just like, I've done my nails because I wanted to do my nails. (laughs) Like, what the fuck? It's the same as tattoos, though. I've had that a couple of times, and people are, "Why do you have so many tattoos?" Or, "Oh, that's a lot of money you've spent on tattoos." And it's like, you know, are you doing that for other people? Or are you just, you know, it'll be somebody being like, "Oh, people are trying to get tattoos to make themselves look better than they actually are," because people think people with tattoos are hot. I don't spend a shit ton of money and go through a hell of a lot of pain to get tattoos for the approval of other people I get them because I fucking like them and it's for me not for anything else exactly I hope anyone listening to this episode loves like Lindsay and Lucy tangent episodes (laughs) because this is peak Lindsay and Lucy tangent really it's been a month it's just been us two (laughs) (laughs) right let's get into the film so we open and it's all Madeline Ashton stars in Songbird, and we see people leaving the theatre. Um, but we can, we go into the theatre and we see Helen sitting there with her fiance Ernest, and you know we're still seeing people leaving. Madeline Ashton's putting on the show of her life. She's having the time of her life on that stage, and Ernest is completely entranced. He is falling in love with this blonde bombshell in the the blue sequin bodysuit and he gives it a standing ovation so after the show they go backstage and like it's essentially confirmed that Ernest has just love at first sight with Madeline and he breaks off his engagement with Helen to marry Madeline instead um this opening scene for me, Goldie Hawn is one of the most beautiful women that's like ever walked the planet. Like I love Goldie Hawn, and the way they make her look so dowdy in this opening scene, I'm like, someone needs to be shot from this. <laughs> it's a crime against my eyes because I'm just like I love her so much, and then especially in this film when she has her glow up. I'm like, she's just absolutely beautiful. And even now she's like well into her 70s and I just think she's absolutely stunning and her children are beautiful as well. She's made beautiful children. I just love her so much. Um, But anyway, what do you think of this opening scene? I feel heart sorry for Helen. Um, And I just love the delusion of Madeline on stage. Like, I wish I could live my life like that. She's giving her all that jazz Chicago fantasy. Mm -hmm. Blue is stunning. Meryl Streep is fucking gorgeous in this film. Even yeah. if she's supposed to be old and haggard, she still looks gorgeous. I mean, Meryl Streep still looks gorgeous now, in my opinion. Yeah. She's a beautiful woman. And so is Goldie Hawn. Like, 
give the makeup team fucking like praise Oscar because to make her look that much of a plain Jane unrecognizable and I just love the look that she's giving Ernest as well like don't you fucking dare and he is just enamored and I also love the scene where in her dressing room and she's like posing herself and being like pretending to get ready for the shop like oh you're you're here it's it's so dramatic and I love her as a character she's so likable even when she's an absolute bastard and you're just like you're so selfish you don't care about anyone but yourself most of the time like we do get a redemption arc for her they're really trying to make you not like her and I love her so much for like everything she is and for everything that she isn't insult me please I love you like you could you could hit me with a truck I'll be fine like (laughs) I think these like first three to five minutes like however long these scenes last for kind of perfectly encompass as well like why it's so beloved by the queer community because this whole thing is high camp like everything about it even Goldie Hawn the way she's dressed looks so dowdy it's high camp, like Madeline Ashton on that stage, you can't tell me that's not drag, like everything is so OTT and I just feel like how can you not just be so enthralled by the fun of this film from the very start Um, (laughs) I'm talking to you Roger Ebert (laughs) uh, who gave us a very bad rating, you could be dead, I don't know (laughs) I was just going to say, what's a fucking crime nobody's gone as Madeline for Snatch Game. How fucking iconic would that be for Snatch Game? Oh, yeah. I mean, they'd have to put it down as Meryl Street, but yeah, yeah, they could totally do that. And, like, RuPaul's so bad for um not knowing, like, newer references, but it's 1992, like, surely Goddy knows Death Becomes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you've not seen it, but in Drag Race Down Under, somebody did Catherine O'Hara as Moira Rose, which is like another iconic queer character I have never seen Shit's Creek but I know who Moira Rose is and the person who's doing her is like doing the impression and it's bang on RuPaul's not seen Shit's Creek so it just went over his head the entire time and um, it's like it's a sin because there's all these like new newer drag artists like young queer people and to be on RuPaul's Drag Race and be successful, you need to know all these references from, like, the 50s to the 80s. And it's like, their fucking parents weren't even alive then. Like, know your queer history, but RuPaul, that does also mean past fucking heyday of supermodel work, 90s. You know what I mean? Exactly. But no, I 100% agree. I would love to see a drag queen in a platinum blonde wig and this sequin bodysuit on RuPaul's Drag Race I think it would be fantastic or even Dracula this is a horror film yeah. at the end of the day <laughs> vote for season five any potential contestants listening please do this for like horror icons reimagined if they do that again oh and oh just getting some kind of um prosthetic to the twisty neck thing yes. oh that would be amazing um so we kind of mentioned fat phobia at the start of this, and this did really bother me. So we flash forward seven years. Ernest and Madeline are married, and H- Helen's distraught. She's living at home with her 20 cats, it feels like. There's cats in the cupboard. There's cats bloody everywhere. <laughs> I know. I was... <laughs> 
<laughs> I love cat. I don't think I could have any more than two. I just couldn't be bothered with the litter box cleanup. But like yeah. having that many, and then it just cupboards full of icing. This all this is all she seems to eat. And then we have you know Goldie Hawn in a fat suit portraying Helen. This bothered me because it's like the worst thing in the world you can be told is that you're fat. And that was a thing, like, I well, we'd have been the same when you were at high school, we'd have been at high school at the same time. Like, if someone called you fat, that was, like, the worst insult in the world. And now it's, like, you know, now it can be, like, I'm fat. Like, I'm a size 20, I'm fat. Like, it's it's not a bad word. It's just what I am. I'm a bigger person. It doesn't make you a bad person. Whereas here, they're using Helen's being overweight to show that she's like let herself go whereas they still could have had this thing of her being completely distraught and depressed they could have still had her hair right they still could have had her even eaten icing she didn't have to have had gained all that weight as part of that maybe I'm being a bit precious but no, I feel not. like it was unnecessary this pissed me off a lot as well um yeah I was at school around the same time as you and the amount of comments I got about my body people calling me fat not that there's anything wrong with being fat and I look back at pictures then and I'm like I wasn't you, you know like come on now um but also there what's so wrong with being fat like how is that the worst fucking insult you're telling somebody what their body looks like okay I know it's like congratulations your eyes work like yeah. oh, is that supposed to hurt me so because like from the looks of it as well it appears she's in like a mental health ward some form of group therapy and the nurse or whoever it is she's in the room with is like you know you keep mentioning Madeline that you haven't even lost a pound and it's like oh so all you care about is her losing weight not actually her mental mental health her well-being and her recovery because god forbid you're happy and fat yeah exactly and it's also like pertinent to remember as well that some um antidepressants actually cause you to gain weight as well so they're like you've not even lost a pound it's like you don't we're not she must be on some kind of medication you can't have a a complete psychotic break and not be i don't think but we don't know what kind of medication she's on maybe she can't lose weight exactly and i i preach this till the fucking cows come home BMI means absolute bullshit and you can't look at somebody and assume what their health is like you know I've been really underweight before I've like gone up and down significantly in weight before you can't tell what somebody's health not only their mental well-being but their physical well-being is just by their body weight because it's it's complete bullshit I, I think about it as well like times where I've had compliments on weight loss there was a time when I was at college where like my student loan wasn't coming in and money was really tight and I actually really couldn't afford to eat and then the next time I saw a bunch of friends they were like you've lost lots of weight what's your secret and I was like not eating I can't afford to (laughs) like and it was like it was oh it was icky and even thinking back at it it was like it was weird so I'm like I'm if you lose weight like and you want a compliment about it, tell me, because I'm not going to give you it. Like, I don't comment on people's, like, body and stuff. Like, I'll comment on your clothes or whatever and be like, oh, you look amazing in that dress, outfit, whatever. I'm not going to comment on your body. I just think it's icky. And, yeah, I don't like doing that. I'm the exact same. I've actively been doing that for a long time because it's just invasive as well. Like, Mm. make that kind of comment. Yeah, but I feel like that's one, and we were mentioning earlier about how 
society is getting a lot more progressive, especially when we talk about the queer community, especially when we talk about trans people, non-binary people. But I feel like we are shifting to not only body positivity, but body acceptance. I've been hearing that. And I like that because you don't always necessarily have to be positive about your body and force toxic positivity. Mm. Your body is the way it is. And um, yeah, I feel like people are being a lot more conscious, not praising weight loss or weight gain for that matter you know just letting people live and be who they are and realize they're actually more than what scale says so Mm. i'll give give the 2020s that and i feel like gen z are really pushing that as well yeah i'm more than this meat sack that carries my mind around (laughs) so yeah as we're saying um helen has a bit of a psychotic break she's in the hospital and then it's like a light bulb goes off she's like has this plan to for revenge against Madeline. Um, so we flash forward another seven years and Helen has invited Ernest and Madeline to a book opening. Um, we kind of see like when Madeline receives the invitation that her acting career has declined. Um, Ernest has, you know, given more and more into his alcoholism he is now working as like somebody that like paints dead bodies to get them ready for funerals um you know we see at the start of the film he seems to be a very successful plastic surgeon we don't know what's going to happen in the interim but now he's not doing that so they go to the opening for Helen's new book and Madeline's just hoping to see Dowdy Helen again, but is absolutely gobsmacked when we see Goldie Horn with this beautiful, long, ginger, wavy hair and just wearing like the most sexy red dress you've ever seen in your entire life. Um, and this is another one like, why have we not seen a recreation of this on Drag Race or something? Like, um, you know, if anybody has like friends that do drag or something you're like my friend has done this or I know this local drag queen that's done it send us all the pictures because we love these looks and we love drag so we'd love to see them recreated but um yes we get this reveal of Madeline not Madeline Helen sorry looking very different to what she did the last time Ernest and Madeline saw her um again Ernest is just thinking with the brain he's got in his pants and just is gulping at Helen and um, Helen and Madeline have this very like fake exchange with each other and what do we think of these scenes when we're kind of reintroduced to glow up Helen? I love this this dress fits her like a glove it's iconic she looks stunning Um, a couple other things I find it really interesting that before they go to this party Madeline's trying to get like all this work done she's trying to get this like plasma procedure done that she had like three weeks ago and she can't do it again because it needs to be a six month break she's not doing that for Ernest she's doing that for Helen she wants to look her best for this party she wants to impress her and also I just love the tension and the awkwardness between her and Ernest they fucking hate each other this is the epitome of a straight couple that needs a divorce like I've never seen two people that loathe each other so much. Like in that in that taxi alone, so fucking awkward. Um, and when they greet each other, and 
Helen gives her the biggest kiss on the cheek and she has that red lipstick mark and it's all so sickly sweet. I love it because it's so fake and I, I'm, I'm here for the petty bitchiness. <laughs> I, I completely forgot about that scene. So when she was at the spa, Madeline got given this um, business card which will become very important later. Like Madeline Ernest continued fighting. She's like, oh, you're the reason that my career declined. Um, and they just have a big fight. Madeline takes off in this like tracksuit and heels. I would <laughs> the ugliest pair of high heels I've ever seen in my life, by the way. <laughs> so many. I hope they were comfy, Meryl. I hope they were comfy. <laughs> she takes off and she's like, Oh, I want to find my lover. Um but he rejects her. He's like, we look ridiculous together. I think it's important to note that like Madeline, Ernest and Helen are all meant to be 50 in this film. So Madeline's lover looks maybe a bit like half, half her age, half of 50, 25, um, and absolutely rejects her. So she's completely fucking distraught. She's going through her handbag and finds the card again and uh, decides to go to uh, Liesl von what's her name, Liesl von Rumens, to see like what, what she's all about, really. She said that she's been told that this person specialises in rejuvenation, so she's like, let's see what she's all about. Um, Can I just ask now, because I know you're saying this is one of the first horror movies you watched, was Liesl in this film part of your queer awakening? Because, oh my God, she's so fucking fit. Like, oh, she's so hot in this film. And, like, as well, in terms of, like, societal standards in Hollywood, like, a lot of the women in this film are much, much older than what you'd expect them to be, like, in terms of, like, how, like, good-looking they are. Like, we're often told, like, once you hit 25, that's it, you're past it. Um, Isabella Rossellini is 39 in this film. Goldie Hawn's 46. Like, you know, like, middle-aged and they look fucking fantastic. And they ooh sex appeal. They're Absolutely. not they're not made to be maternal or matriarchal at all, which we see a lot in Hollywood. Like you say, even now, after 25, a lot of people see 50 as like kind of the end, like the end is near. And it's like, no, it's not. Like you still have plenty of life left in you. Yeah, they both I, I really think that's quite an important message, especially when this film came out as well. You know, like we've said age is a big thing with women and you know you're seen as not a sexual being or to be desired past a certain age and all the women in this are they're all seen as desirable and I fancy all of them (laughs) that's it and it's like Isabel Isabella Rosalini cutting about in this it's just basically like a big necklace really and just think of her her boobs and yeah younger me was just like oh I'm gay now <laughs> you know like that Ben the Simpsons movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> I like women now <laughs> um so she goes over Madeline um she's greeted by uh Liesl's lovers um Liesl talks to her about this potion that she has you know, she's like, how old do you think I am? You know, Madeline's is 38, Isabella Rosalie is actually 39 in this film. And uh, she reveals that she's actually 71, which would shock anybody because obviously she doesn't, she doesn't even look like she's pushing 40 <laughs> over 70. Um, so she also shows Madeline 
it's like reju- like rejuvenation powers. Um, the way Madeline screams when Elise pr- pricks her finger out decks me every single time. It's so over the top. She's so fucking dramatic. Imagine her getting her blood taken. She's crying in five minutes. And she sees that the potion fixes the wound on her finger. So Madeline purchases a bottle and um, Liesl gives her the warnings. So she tells her to look after her body, which is very important. She also says to her that she can maybe have another 10 years out of her career, but after that, she's going to have to hide from public view forever um, because the potion makes you immortal. See, a lot of times in films, it's like, I've seen this film loads of times, but when she's like, treat your body well, I feel like if this had been made nowadays, there would have been like, placed so much emphasis on it and it would have made me be like, oh, collect that and remember that for later. Whereas in this film, I always forget about it. So when they start like fucking about, I'm just like, oh, like, that's why this is happening. And I, I do feel like that's good storytelling because I, I don't want to have that in the back of my head the whole time. Like, oh, that woman said this, so they should have done that. And it, it makes it more fun for me, I think. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it's a nice bit of foreshadowing because when you first hear her saying treat your body well, you're thinking like, I don't know, good diet, exercise, or yeah. like the stuff that would normally keep you young. Keep doing that, babe, because it's going to help with the process. You don't think, make sure you don't fall down a flight of stairs twist your neck because that's going to be a bit of a pain in the arse fix <laughs> oh and so in that scene we obviously see like madeline's bum tightening it lifts and then we see <laughs> the boobs lift so apparently they tried to do that with a pneumatic bra wow. but it just looked awful so what you actually see in the film is like the stylist obviously with like green screen gloves on and it's them pushing <laughs> metal streaks boobs up to make them look higher. Fucking dream job right there. Imagine if you've got to do that and go, go around and be like, yeah, I lifted Metal Streep's tits. I lifted 17 time Oscar nominee Metal Streep's breasts. Like, I put that on my CV. Oh, same. <laughs> that point. It's like, where can my career go from here? <laughs> so while all this is going on, Helen has actually turned up at um, Ernest and Madeline's house. You know, we see her slightly before this, like practicing her surprise. Madeline, I need to speak to Madeline. And when she gets there, she um, starts to seduce Ernest and try and convince him to kill Madeline. Um, this scene where she's like saying about how she's had her glow up and oh I was such a timid girl that couldn't even say sexual before I'm watching this like he is like creaming in his knickers right now like the way Bruce Willis plays like the absolutely like rose tinted glasses like completely madly in love with you kind of person so well like I think he has to play that like blind to everything else like completely love at first sight so well to make this film work and all these little nuances in his face and you know the kind of comedic timing of dropping the glass and things like that I think he does it really well he was a simp before simps were invented he walked so simps could run 
yeah I think that was the word I was trying to look for I'm like the dictionary in my brain does not work anymore reminds me of you Bruce Willis is um Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors just completely besotted oh he's such a simp for Audrey yeah I love that so um, Helen comes up with this like very elaborate plan of like getting her drunk and pushing her off a cliff in a car and all this stuff kind of goes out the window when Madeline comes home and her and Ernest get into this fight and he's like she's really berating him and he like flips he starts choking her and she's like you know you see her begging it's, it's quite hard to watch like please please don't do this and then you know they kind of stop and then <laughs> this really just like over the top thing of her like kind of slipping off the stairs but she's like going against the laws of physics and just kind of like floating there like <laughs> I'm about to fall if someone would catch me and she's there for this absurdly long time and he just kind of pokes her with his finger and she falls down the stairs um so like at this point the first time you watched it like you know obviously we've watched this hilariously campy film up to this point and if you don't know any better you think this is gonna about to take a really dark turn um like what did you what did you think yeah because when I watched this again I'd forgotten pretty much everything so it was almost like a first watch I was like oh this is getting really dark you see like how how dark her husband is and the anger in his face he's really fucking losing it um and at this point you really feel for her because she's so vulnerable and she's terrified but then we get comedy again in probably the most dramatic and longest fall down a staircase I've ever fucking seen in my life I've never seen somebody take that long but fall down a flight of stairs it is so funny and the way she's contorted when she falls as well it's just like the absolute drama of it all so like she's fallen down the stairs and Ernest is like excitedly nervously phones Helen to tell her what's happened and they do this so well because Meryl Streep is so far in the background um, and he's on the phone recanting the whole story and you can just see like limbs kind of moving in the background and he'll maybe turn around to look and it stops and it's just so great um, this film actually won best special effects at the Oscars the year that it came out I know it was against Alien 3 I can't remember what the other film was um but there's only three up for it this film won and I think these like faraway shots in particular some of the close-ups don't hold up quite so well but these faraway shots are just excellent when you see the limbs just kind of like wriggling around and Madeline's trying to get herself back like up to standing after this horrific fall walks up to Ernest and it's just like what the hell do you think you're doing pushing me down the stairs and he's so rightly freaked out like what do you think of these scenes with Meryl Streep's head <laughs> turned around the wrong way I love this so much the film nerd in me loves the way that shot is done where it's like a soft focus in the background so you can't mm. quite see her like the way that set up is just really pretty um it's so it's almost like panto like she's behind you I just want to shout like turn around Ernest um I love how dramatic and campy it is and also he shrieks like a child 
literally <laughs> shrieks and it is so funny um it's quite i would say it's not gory because there's no blood but it's really squeamish because like the bones and bone fractures and stuff i find that quite uh, that gives me the heebie-jeebies um and just the way her neck's twisted so gross but also it's quite funny because she can't walk properly she's walking in different directions and she's like oh I can't tell where I'm if I'm coming or I'm going you know she tries to pick up the phone and she can't she tries to sit on the piano and she can't um I really like I really like the way these effects are done because I mean considering it's the 90s as well I know some of the close-ups aren't the best but I still think this is done really well like it, it made me feel like you know when you see something that's that, unsettles you you get those kind of butterflies in your tummy and you're like oh I don't like that like yeah it, it gave me that <laughs> I think it's just one of those things like like we kind of spoke about when Stephen was on when we're watching Children of the Corn like I think sometimes when I'm doing things for the podcast I watch things a little too critically so you like notice these things but if I was just like passively watching this I would just be like oh look at that twisted neck it's it's disgusting <laughs> book worthy definitely book worthy definitely so like now that Ernest is like oh she's not dead um they they go to the hospital because you know obviously her head is twisted all the whole way around and Ernest is just like oh like you've dislocated your vertebra or like he says something like that and they go to the emergency room Madeline's told she's technically dead um the doctor is freaking out Ernest, you know, obviously he he was a doctor. He's doing the pulse and all the rest of it. He's fucking freaking out. He's going around the hospital trying to find someone. The doctor who was initially looking at Madeline is having a heart attack. And then when he comes back to the room, you know, unbeknownst to Ernest, Madeline's fainted. Madeline's been taken to the morgue by a different doctor. <laughs> and he has to find her in the morgue. I cannot think of anything worse than waking up in a body bag in a morgue. Could you imagine? Oh, I, know, I remember we spoke about one of the Jaguar episodes of being buried alive, like not being able to breathe, being claustrophobic. Mm. I, that. I also love that scene with the doctor. And like, he, he tries to shout for her pulse. He's like, no, no, okay, I'll get another stethoscope. It doesn't work. And then he takes a swig of Ernest's um, fla- uh, flask, like, G- give me a bit of that. And he's still in total disbelief. And he's like, this fucking isn't real. This, this isn't real. He's like twisting her wrist. And she's like, so nonchalant about it. She's like, ah, I don't feel a thing. You know, she just wants to get back home. Um, I love the quiet panic. And then he walks out and has a fucking heart attack. <laughs> I know I completely forgot about this so when I realized it was him on the stretch I was like oh my god he's dying um but like you know we talk about these things in movies all the time and then and, and it's fun and it's fun to watch and you know you know watch the zombie apocalypse or whatever and imagine what you would do but then it's like being actually confronted with a reanimated corpse because like that's what she kind of well she's not even reanimated is she like I don't even know how to describe Madeline um it's kind of like I know it's references galore to like fucking hell but you know in American Horror Story in Coven when they put back um I've forgotten his name but they put back the love interest and he's oh I was gonna say Tate Langdon but that's what his name is in the first series yeah 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 but it's it's the actor that plays Tate yeah like that where he's not alive but he's not dead 
it, you're kind of like in this in between thing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want that. Like no, I was just thinking like. I don't know if you get this as well. Like this, this whole storyline of like immortality forever. Like we're totally skipping ahead, but I feel like a couple of years ago, one of my friends died, and they were the exact same age as me. And I'm just like now, it's like it's a privileged age because she can't do that anymore. Like she had a kid as well, and it's just like there's all this shit that I'm gonna do that she's never gonna do, and it's like it's a privileged age, really. Yeah, I've been trying to think about that a bit more because I know I have a running joke that I'm saying I'm getting really old being in my late 20s and I hate it and I feel really old and it's... Oh, I still call myself old. I feel like an 84-year-old woman. (laughs) But, you know, I had somebody very close to me pass away a month and a half ago. She was 20, going to be 27. And it's like, life's too short. So, Mm. like you say, ageing is a privilege. A lot of people don't get to see past a certain age so it is about kind of celebrating that and it is Stephen Hebb but Ernest kind of says that at the end as well he's like I'm going to see all these people around me die and I'm never going to experience certain things you know that come with age because it is a natural process so there is things to celebrate about it as well and milestones and memories and things that you wouldn't get to do if you were immortal or like you say if tragedy strikes and you, you you don't get you don't get to live a full life so it is worth celebrating absolutely so um you know once Ernest rescues Madeline from the morgue he uh, takes her home and uses his um you know um I was going to say mortician skills it's kind of more undertaker skills to kind of paint her back to life and when she's been put in the fridge just all the colours drained out of her so he needs to kind of paint her to make her look alive and he seems to be thriving here um, his like creative juices are very much flowing, I kind of I kind of love it for him because we just see him be- being very downtrodden he does deserve it to a certain extent he just keeps fucking off women for other better looking women but it's nice to see him not be like a miserable alcoholic and he's really just living his like best artistic life kind of because it is artistry what he's doing I feel like anyway yeah 100% is um it's him using his skills to his advantage you can tell he's the type of person and I can certainly relate to this because like I'm quite career orientated and he obviously is as well he put his whole life and soul into his job but I think to the point where it was his personality trait and it was what made him who he is. So not having that really kind of took away his spirit, I think. So getting a taste of that creativity again made him probably feel like himself. And there's a couple, I don't know if you've ever watched them, there's some really interesting like YouTube channels of like undertakers and they tell you about the process of it, not just like the embalming stage and that. I'll have to find, there's a girl who has a YouTube channel who has some really interesting like, videos about the process but one of them is about the makeup process because obviously it's entirely different and he is right you 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 need to use different types of products they are literally like paint because you know there's no blood circulation in the body and there's no water retention you know it's it's a different type of canvas it is literally a canvas you're painting on Hmm. and it it is a form of artistry and it's bloody fucking hard work as well it's not an easy thing to do so might sound morbid but that that really fascinates me like undertakers and all that like the jobs that you do like it is an art form in itself and 
it's not something that I could do and it's not an easy job but um it's an incredible one I would say yeah especially like in the US um I've not been to a huge amount of I've only been to like two funerals here in the UK and both of them were closed coffin closed casket if you're in the US but they in the US they seem to do a lot of like open open coffin funerals so I mean painting someone to just look like they're sleeping really um it's a lot of you'll need a lot of attention to detail and considering this will be the last time a lot of people will see their loved one before they're buried or cremated like it is an important job I guess um feels a, a little bit creepy to me if I if you have a funeral for me close the coffin <laughs> nobody needs to see me <laughs> nobody needs to see my sleeping face just no. just I sleep with my mouth open, I drill everywhere, like, <laughs> if you want an accurate representation. <laughs> so, while Ernest is living his inner artist life, um, Helen turns up and she's under the illusion that they're going to get ready to bury Madeline. She still thinks Madeline's dead. Um so Eris comes down the stairs and is like trying to get rid of Helen, like, oh, go away, like, she's quieting down. And Madeline hears everything. She hears about how they tried to plot to kill her. And she goes and grabs a shotgun and shoots Helen in the stomach at quite close range and like knocks her into this pond that they've got in the garden. And so now. Helen and, and now Madeline and Ernest are talking about getting rid of Helen's body and similarly like they're speaking with each other for such a long period of time we're watching the water turn all red and then all of a sudden Helen gets out of the water with a the most ginormous hole in her stomach um I get this is another special like great special effect like you understand why they won the award for it um what do you think of Helen's shooting scene I wasn't sure what to call it there <laughs> I love this because it's so brutal and Madeline gets so up close and personal you're like oh that was oh she doesn't give a shit does she she does that and there's no remorse whatsoever she meant every part of that she meant it um, but then when she gets out the water and there's that giant fucking hole in her stomach it is so good and she just looks so pissed off and the way that Madeline like drops the gun and is like oh shit <laughs> guess we both took the potion I I love that like it, it's so over the top the special effects are really good um, and I just love the next scenes that we have where they're both fighting each other with these fucking shovels and stuff and it's just the tension between them is so great and like just how they used Ernest as a pawn because I love earlier as well you know when Helen's like trying to seduce Ernest because she fancies him anymore it's purely to get on Madeline's nerves like they're both they're both just using this man as a pawn to play with each other they're playing cat and mouse with one another these two are the definition of frenemies because yeah. like Madeline got tired of Ernest a long long time ago Helen is not interested in Ernest whatsoever. She only is trying to get to Madeline and find out why, like why she's continually stole her boyfriends over the years. Um, but yeah, just before this, uh, we find out that Helen also drank the potion in 1985. So um, yeah, she's meant to be 50 at the moment. So she drank it in 1985. 
five. She'll have like stayed at forty three, um, or like slightly younger than forty three. Um, yeah. So they have this fight. Well, have this discussion really about what went wrong in their friendship. Um, you know, Helen talks about Madeline stealing all her boyfriends. Madeline talks about the fact that Helen used to slag her off behind her back and call her cheap. Um, they're both like fully deny this, but then eventually, uh, like apologize and like admit what they done wrong, and they end up reconciling. And see when they're like nice friends, oh, they're so fucking cute. I love them. They're so cute. You know what it reminds me of when you've had a fight with someone and it's been simmering, and you're on a night out, and you're both pissed out your fucking minds and you have a heart to heart and you're like I actually think you're really sound I'm sorry I was a cow I'm sorry I was a cow and then there's like crying in the in the club toilets and the toilet ladies there like oh I hope these are okay I love that you've made up <laughs> like, it reminds me of those kind of conversations that you would have and you're right like they've all done this They've, done, they've gone through all this just for the approval of each other because they both care about what the other thinks. And there's, I know you don't read fan fiction or anything, but this would be like a perfect fan fiction of enemies to besties, hmm. of enemies to lovers. I would love that for them as well. Just run off in the sunset and be lovers together. That would be great. But this besties arc, I do really like. It is really sweet because they care about each other so much um, to the point where they're so jealous of each other. Um, and they want what the other has, and they want the approval of the other one. I feel yeah. like, and that's what they want. They want the other one to be like praise them. Yeah, definitely. So Ernest patches them all up one last time. Um, he fixes the hole in Helen's abdomen, and he sorts out Madeline's neck. And he said to them even before he done it, he was like, "This is the last time." I am out of here, you know, it's like it's till death do us part. You're both bloody dead. I'm getting out of here. But Helen and Madeline realize that they can't really live their lives without Ernest's skills as like a mortician, an undertaker, um, because he'll be able to help patch them up over the, the years and years and years that they've got left to live. So they initially try to convince him to go to Lethal's to also take the potion, but they end up drugging him and just taking him there instead. Ernest wakes up and he's at Lethal's mansion and she does the same like speech, the same bit that she does for Madeline that we see earlier, you know, shows him the finger trick. And like Ernest is a bit tempted, but then as we were saying before, he was like, well, like what do I do afterwards like what what the hell am I going to do with immortality you know and he talks about how all of his friends and family are going to die and he's just going to continue to live and live and live and you know he doesn't want to live with Helen and Madeline for all of eternity so um he says no but he does take the potion uh, with him and like puts it in his pocket so at Liesel's mansion, this is actually like a party for all the people that Liesel have given the potion to. Um, how many celebrities did you spot? Oh, I think, you know what, I should have spot, so there was Elvis. Yeah. Who else was there? 
The only other ones I remember seeing are Andy Warhol and Marilyn Monroe. Oh, I, I, I should have spotted Marilyn. That would be, I like that. There probably is quite a few. It'll be like, where's Wally? Celebrity edition. I should watch it back and have a look. Yeah, definitely. Because um, there are so many people who like, oh, we've seen this person, we've seen that person. But um, yeah, Madeline and Helen from across the room see Ernest leaving. Um, there seems to be like a bit of a scuffle, like he ends up trapped on the roof. Um, and then he ends up on this like water drain. And Madeline and Helen are trying to like throw out a scarf to him, like they're trying to save him. And they, they're trying to convince him to take the potion to save his life, basically, because if he falls, like he's going to die. He's like, no, like he's very much made his decision about immortality and he's, he's not going to drink the potion. So he falls to what we think is going to be his death. Um, but actually he falls through this glass roof into the pool and he somehow survives. Nobody would survive this. I was going to say, who the fuck survives that? I'm sorry. Also, he's falling through glass. There's no fucking glass sticking inside of him at the end of it. Like, No, it's all like magically just gone into the pool. No cuts or bruises <laughs> on him at all. So the, we have another flash forward to 37 years later and Madeline and Helen are at Ernest's funeral where he has been eulogised as having lived a very adventurous and fulfilling life with a very large family and friends. Um, you know, they, they talk about he didn't start having children until he was in his 50s. Um, and he seems to have several children and grandchildren and, you know, a, a beautiful wife, I think she's called Claire. And he seems to have done all these wonderful things in the 37 years since we've last seen him. Um, but Helen and Madeline are up the back, like cracking jokes and being very bitter. And I just, I feel like I would be doing this at my ex's funeral as well. Like, what's a fuck a good person? <laughs> you and me in like 40 years <laughs> so they've both got their veils on you know try to be respectful and they eventually just leave midway through the funeral uh, we finally get a look under their veils and we see that the paint job that Ernest did all those years ago is is cracking off and you know they're they're painting their eyebrows back on but it's like with black sharpie rather than <laughs> you know like a natural hair hair color and we do kind of see that like their immortality isn't all it's cracked up to be but I think the way they look in the end does kind of sum up what that producer of Drag Race said about the film like they're the villains but they're also the victims of a really harsh beauty standard placed on women and you know at the moment there's all this talk of like the changing trend of going back to size zero fashion three five years ago the trend was bbls how many women yeah. paid so much money how many men as well like if they wanted a big booty how many people paid thousands for a bbl for it not to be trendy anymore and now we're going back to like waif like heroin chic 
being the trend again the standard um so it is really hard on women like because you're not gonna always have the the in look and so it's hard to be consistently on trend that's why trends are just really stupid um and just unfair on the average person like it's all right for the Kardashians to go and get their BBLs taken out and have other weight loss surgeries because they can afford it and they've got the time to do that like someone who maybe works in your office who got a BBL they can't go and easily just go back to Turkey and get that taken out like what are they gonna do no exactly and you can see this as well with things like filler filler was such a big thing for a while especially lip fillers as well how many people are you seeing getting it dissolved now but sometimes when you get these procedures done even if you have the money it's not safe for you to get them reversed like bbls like the death rate for those is dangerously fucking high it's a really dangerous procedure to go through um and we've even seen it now with like getting veneers so you know a lot of people will fly out to somewhere like turkey for example get their teeth shaved down and get veneers on but veneers will only last for about 10 years and sometimes they'll chip or they'll crack and that's a big investment and if you don't have the money to get it fixed you've got your teeth permanently damaged underneath and it's just we're shown <clears throat> like it's a quick fix and you'll be happy forever whether it's a bbl getting veneers getting fillers in reality it's not and for the average person they can't afford to change it back and also sometimes it's dangerous to try and change it back so don't permanently alter your body for a trend only alter your body if you want to not just based on what society says um because it is going to change again in the next fucking five years and that's like the thing that happens with Madeline and Helen like they make a very permanent decision and they can't reverse it I mean it's very hilarious what happens when they slip on the spray paint can and just crash into a million pieces but they're still alive they're still talking to each other so even though they're in bits they're still not dead and they're gonna have to live with this forever and ever and ever um which is actually quite a like depressing ending even though like the way that they do it is very humorous but like the fact that they're shattered in pieces and still alive is actually quite harrowing it is like super glue ain't gonna fix you there duct tape ain't gonna fix you <laughs> i think well they're supposed to keep the fact they're immortal a secret and it's like someone's gonna come across them yeah and just probably just think they're mannequins actually because it's not like they're oozing blood or anything it's like they're dust on the inside um but yeah that's that's the end of the film um I, I love this film so much and like I'm really glad that at the time it did so well financially this film was made on a 55 million dollar budget and grossed 149 million so obviously the advertising campaign responded uh well with audiences and they went out to see it and quite right because this is such a fun film in terms of ratings, like I said at the start, the ratings are really low for this film, and I just think it's criminal. Um, so IMDb, it's got six point six out of ten. On Rotten Tomatoes critics, it's got a forty five percent, and the audience have given it a sixty one. And on Metacritic, it's got a fifty six percent. Fucking savages. 
exactly it's really low and I don't agree with it at all because this film is full of fun like a lot of the critics on Rotten Tomatoes talk about the message being really hollow but I feel like we've spoke like about loads of things that this film talks about I don't feel like this film is hollow at all I think it talks about a lot of really important well not important issues but important like philosophical questions about immortality um in a really fun campy way yeah exactly and that's really hard to do deliver a message very important especially about something that a lot of us don't like to talk about which is life and mortality but doing it in a humorous way um it's really hard to strike that balance but I feel like this film does it really well yeah I agree but with that being said Lucy, what would you rate Death Becomes Her out of 10? Right. So I know I just said I don't give 10s out a lot. I'm trying not to. <laughs> don't judge me. But no, I'm going to give this a 10 out of 10 because even the only flaw I can find in this is Ernest somehow miraculously surviving, going through fucking uh, all that glass and that massive fall. But it's not to the point where it upsets me. I think this is such a staple. It's such a classic in the queer community for the drag community, but also for horror as well. And in general, it's just an iconic film. It's the epitome of fashion, Mm. but it also has a really important message that still holds true today. And it's quite a feminist film. And I feel like it's a fucking shame that all the critics are, well, we can almost guarantee straight white men because it wasn't made for them. As you said at the start, it's made for the girls' gays and theys. It's not made for their perspective, God forbid you know, there's a film out there that's not made for a man. Um, and I feel like anybody that's walked in this world as a woman or a feminine presenting person or a gay person is going to relate to this movie and is going to understand the message behind it, but also have some giggles along the way with the icons that are Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep. You know, it's, I, I can't fault it. I really like it. It's a, it, Even though it's like, quite a harrowing ending it's still a feel-good film and it's a comforting film um, yeah so I'd recommend anyone to give it a watch so yeah I'm gonna give it a 10 I think it deserves it I'm gonna give this film a 9 out of 10 it is some good campy fun um Meryl Streep is bloody fantastic in this she purposefully took on this role because it's very different to anything that she'd done before and I think she absolutely slays it um, Goldie Hawn's in it, she's an absolute queen and she's also fantastic in this film as well and yeah, like if you haven't seen this, like if you've watched listened to us, just spoil the whole thing for you and you've not watched it, go and watch it, if you know someone that hasn't watched it, invite them over for a spooky sleepover, get the snacks and the blankets out and stick it on for them because they'll have so much fun with it Um, well, that's the end of the show I know it's been our first one together for a while. I missed I this. It was fun. I know. We've definitely gone on more tangents. <laughs> it's just us. <laughs> but I like it. It's good fun. Um. So next week, uh, we're going to be joined by the boys from Cast Me to Hell. Yeah. Uh, which is really exciting they've been big supporters of us the whole this whole year we've been podcasting so it's really great that we finally get to talk to them I've never I've never actually I've never actually properly met them before so I'm looking forward to next week um 
we're going to be talking about our favourite Taylor Swift album. Uh, no, I'm only joking. <laughs> we are talking about folklore uh, and we're going to be covering Antlers and Candyman, the 1992 one, not the 2021 one. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Antlers is a really fun, well, I was going to say really fun film. It's actually really dark, but it's got some amazing special effects in it. The, the folk story in that, that the folklore in that is really interesting and Candyman um I love this idea of like folklore you always think of like rural settings this is like a folklore tale in an urban setting yeah and it's like the whole story of the creation of Cabri, Cabri Green and then it's later de- demolition it's very interesting to me and it's very important to the story of Candyman as well so I'm kind of looking forward to getting back into researching that and chatting about that film next week um so Lucy where can people find you online if you want to find me you can find me at lulu underscore pew on all the socials for talking all gay things all horror things and yeah all my writing you can find me there i am at heights lindsay underscore on all social media uh, i've recently launched a makeup instagram uh, yeah. so by the time this comes out there should be a good few halloween posts on there um, it's just me playing with makeup um having a bit of fun so looking forward to that so please give me a follow on Lindsay loves makeup underscore as well if you want to see any of that um the podcast is at girlfriend pod on twitter and girlfriends underscore podcast on instagram but until then stay spooky